Welcome to the Jason Tim Podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your Wednesday to come hang out with Tommy and I as we talk some basketball. Tommy, how are you doing today, man? Fantastic. Uh, excited to talk NBA as always. A lot of stuff happening. Um, it feels like I say that every week, but it's the truth. The NBA is probably the most active day-to-day league out of all the professional sports, so it always gives us something to talk about, man. Yeah, and you know, I, it's funny because I feel like one of the reasons why I'm excited for our topic today is I feel like for the first time this season, I feel like I have a decent grasp on all of the uh, of the teams. I've been super lucky because my wife, you know, I've talked with you before about how like I, I try very carefully to balance like, you know, diving too hard into my hobbies and then also kind of making sure that I, I spend time with my wife. And and she right now is uh, going to school in addition to work. And it's ironically been kind of a blessing for me because I've just been diving into basketball uh, and watching a lot more games than I usually do. You know, I've always been able to watch like every Laker game and a handful of marquee games, but now I can like really dive into a lot of the teams. And it's been nice because I've been able to get like a much better feel uh, for a lot of the teams. Today, we are going to discuss uh, uh, basically as a result of the Anthony Davis injury and the fact that he's going to be out for probably a month and then who knows what it might look like for him the rest of the season we're going to talk about how that has kind of cracked the door open for a lot of different teams to potentially win a championship this year. I'm going to let you guys know what I think are the list of contenders. Tommy's going to let us know if he disagrees. And then we're going to go one by one and kind of just talk about what it would look like for that team to get the job done and to, and to hoist the trophy at the end of the day. Uh, but before we get to that point, I want to talk about a couple of current event stuff. Um, the first thing I wanted to touch on was this Draymond Green uh, quote that he had in this post game the other night uh, involving the Andre Drummond situation and the Blake Griffin situation and some of the, uh, you know, the hypocrisies that he pushed, uh, pointed out about like the way that, uh, you know, activity and business uh, it takes place in the league. And so I want to start there. I want to let you go first. I'm going to give you your idea, but I do think it's, I do think it's important right off the top to talk about. It. It's just very complicated. It's always a lot more complicated than people are willing to uh, to originally kind of admit. So I want to kind of dive into that. So for starters, what was your first impression when you heard that quote? Like you're noting, it is complicated. I don't think there's any one correct answer here in terms of how to analyze the situation. But I, I think what we're seeing here, and we see this increasingly with, with more players basically having access to fans and to media just – through their own ability, being able to use things like uninterrupted or just things like Twitter or Instagram, where they can just contact fans directly. It's more, you know, kind of consumer to consumer. Everybody wants credit and nobody really wants to take responsibility for their own actions. Right. Like he, Draymond pointed to the Harden situation and every, every bit of criticism that Harden got was deserved. Houston bent over backwards for that guy for four or five years and then he, he got all of his money, and then he turned around and wanted to be traded. And at the end, of the end of the day, he won. Like, he got what he wanted, and he got all of his money. So if he had to take a bit of bad publicity, who cares? Like, at the end of the day, he still wins because he might win a championship now. Brooklyn looks amazing. Um, but I think the important distinction is to make between superstars. Like, superstars, I think, to have a ton of power in the league because they can single-handedly determine championships, right? And I think... If you are that good and you're that talented at what you do, you should be able to determine kind of where you go and where you play. But I, I don't think the Andre Drummond types do have the same type of power. So I do understand what Draymond is saying, but 
I, I also think a lot of his ire is directed maybe at the wrong people. So I'm interested to hear what you think because I think he's he's trying to direct ire at the league instead of looking why a guy like Andre Drummond would be perceived as a cancer. I don't think it's the league's fault. I think there's something else at play here, but I'll let you go. Yeah, so uh, same as Fondiari talks about this all the time and uh, about how like the, the Players Association – cares too much about the top of the league and the, and the middle class kind of gets snubbed out of that. And, you know, there's been some improvements recently with them attempting to help the bottom of the league, you know, through, you know, raising the veteran minimum to, you know, uh, raising G league salaries to creating that uh, G league select team or what I can't remember what it's called, but the team that they have, that's got all the guys fresh out of college G league ignite. Ignite. Yeah, G League Ignite. That's right. Yep. So, like, they, they, there's been some improvement, but there's a lot of truth to the fact that, like, a lot of the power in the league, you know, this player empowerment era is really just about a handful of guys. It's very um, concentrated. It's a very yeah. concentrated bit of power. And I, I'm kind of okay with that. Like, I, I think, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, like, you know, understanding the harsh reality that the guys in the middle of the league don't really have an opportunity to get this wealthy if it wasn't for the fact that the very, very best players in the league drive such great viewership. So that's why we talk about how, uh, you know, LeBron or Steph might be worth $100 million a year if you really get down to brass tacks. Like, I, I, I do understand that. I think the interesting thing about the Draymond Green quote is I 100% agree with you. I thought it was kind of directed in the wrong, in the, at the wrong people because if you're worried about the impression that, that a certain move gives to a player or to a, an organization, you have to look at the media. And, and, you know, and, and quite frankly, I'm a little bit of a defeatist when it comes to the media. I just think it's I think we're in an, like the whatever, you know, like a golden age. We're like the opposite of a golden age with media because the there's too the, many cooks in the kitchen. There's too many cooks in the kitchen. There's a, almost no accountability. Like even the people that try to hold themselves accountable are in the political world. They're like painted as like fake news and stuff like that. Like it's been one of the most frustrating eras to, to try to, you know, lean on any sort of journalism pretty much in the history of mankind, you know, and, and we live in a free country. I mean, it's, it's, it's way worse, obviously in other countries where, you know, the, the government controls the media, but I mean, it's, it's just not, it's not perfect. And, you know, what's frustrating is like, you know, if you're, uh, uh, if, if, if James Harden does something, you know, what ends up happening is there's a, a large pool of media and all of them kind of form their opinions about it. And you had people come out caping for James Harden and you had people coming out that were, uh, ripping him, r- ripping him to shreds. And, and, but the same thing happens to the teams. And that's the funny part. I think, I think like the, the Draymond Green speech kind of like took the focus off of the much bigger problem which is a collective bargaining issue between the league and its players, between the owners and the players. Because the truth of the matter is, for decades and decades and decades, the owners took advantage of the players. That's true. There's, if you read any ba- book about basketball history, it was pretty bad. And, and, and credit to the players, especially like the early players like Bill Russell who, uh, and Will Chamberlain, who were willing to put their foot down on certain issues with the owners and leverage some more rights for the players. But if you look at this current situation, in recent years – the players have regained some of that power. But now it's almost like a, a, an even playing field where they're kind of both screwing over each other. Because for every situation like a, a Andre Drummond, which may be ugly, or that Harrison Barnes situation in Sacramento, there's also a situation like Anthony Davis in New Orleans or James Harden in Houston where it's just as ugly the other way around. So like the big thing that I thought when I saw that quote was like, we are headed to a nasty 
uh, collective bargaining agreement the next time that uh, they get into a negotiation. Because if I'm the owners, I'm like, I'm sick of these guys. And if I'm the players, I'm like, I'm sick of these guys. And I don't know where, I don't know where it settles from there. I mean, it could get ugly. I don't think a strike is out of the question. I really don't, especially considering that the league is losing money relative to where they thought they would be because of COVID. You know, there's, there's still no fans at most of the arenas and the ones that do have fans, they're at like 20 to 25, yeah, 20 to 25% capacity. So I do not think strike is out of the question at all. Like it, it can get very, very ugly, Hmm. but what I'd say just in regards to this situation is it, it just felt like weird timing. It felt like Draymond had this thought in his mind for a while, and he was just waiting for a moment to go off about it, and he picked a weird moment. Because who was saying anything bad about Andre Drummond? Who was saying anything bad about him? The Cavs are sitting him out to recoup value for him and make sure he doesn't get injured so they can actually trade him, and and both sides can get probably the best of both situations. Drummond doesn't want to be there anymore because they're losing games, and the Cavs don't want him there because he's not playing hard. Like Nobody was saying terrible things about Andre Drummond in the first place. And if if people are saying bad things about him, it's going to be media members like you're noting. It's going to be the people in the media and they're doing so maybe at the behest of an organization, right, which is something that you have to look at. Maybe the organization is back channeling bad messages about a player. But Draymond sitting there yelling at, at, you know, about, oh, the the league isn't trading the players. Right. And media members are sitting there like nodding their head. Wow. Draymond's so brave. He's right. It's like, dude, media members, you guys are the ones that talk bad about the players in the in these situations. And I realize the irony of this because we're sitting here doing a podcast, essentially acting like media members and like yelling into the void about this stuff. But like, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. His comments, while I understood kind of the broad overarching theme of everything he was trying to say, it just, it didn't hit quite as well as it could because Draymond is one of the smartest dudes in the league. Like by all accounts, he's an incredibly smart guy and I'm one of Draymond's biggest fans. So I'm kind of apprehensive to criticize him in any manner, but it just felt like weird timing and weird messaging. I I got the point, but he didn't connect it as well as I thought he could have. Yeah, no, I agree, and and that's the thing. Like, like Draymond has uh, he has a motive. Uh, he's he's got a bias in this case, and that that that's always going to be the case. Like when you're when you're asking a player to talk about players' rights, I I think he made good points. He pointed out some hypocrisies in media coverage, but then he like seemingly like passive aggressively put it on the owners. And and again, like I said, I'm a media defeatist. Like good luck changing that situation. If your hope is a utopia where the media treats every situation 100% fair from both sides, that is never going to happen. And I would even go a step further to say it's going to continue to get worse, especially as more people get voices. And and the flip side of that is like, you know. Uh, 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 from the standpoint of uh, like acknowledging the realities of the way that the, the, the media treats these situations, you have to understand that like you're, all you can do is try to control the narrative yourself. And so it's, 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 the onus is on you to try to make sure you're ultra transparent in your press conferences. Like Andre Drummond needs to come out and say, this is what happened. I told him I wanted to play. I wanted to trade, but I also wanted to play. They said they wanted to bench me. I think that's bullshit. They should have to put me out there on the floor when I ask. Like, that's one thing. You know, or James Harden said the same thing. Like, what ends up happening is they leak some stuff, and it's very vague, and then the the media can run with it with whatever interpretation they want as opposed to, like, really, really going out of your way to tell the story. But, I mean, again, it's a losing battle, and it's, it, the onus is on us as people, as fans, to try to like seek out 
the media that is doing the job right. Like that, that's the reality of, of the, the media problem being fixed. It's not, you can't fix the media. You can just fix the way you consume it. And, right. and that, and that responsibility is on. You got to amplify the right voices. And then I, trying to compare any two situations, I think is just misguided because all these things are case by case, right? We're dealing with human beings, beings who are actively like changing emotions and thoughts and, and what they want to do. You can't compare any two cases. Like, as many parallels as we may want to draw, like even the Anthony Davis and James Harden situations are, are like very, very different, right? It, even though there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities, kind of just from a thirty thousand foot view, they're not the same situation when you get down to it. So I think trying to compare any of these situations, you're just it's always going to feel kind of hollow and just like like you're saying, Draymond's biased. He's always going to side with the players, and then when he gets on the other side, he's probably always going to side with management. Like mm-hmm. We've seen this with Michael Jordan. Jordan was like a huge kind of player's rights guy when he was playing. And now he's like all about doing everything that's best for the owners. End of the day, people are always going to fight for their their oh, own personal yeah. gain. They're mm-hmm. always fighting for their own personal gain. And that's what that's how we as fans have to approach these situations, I think. We just have to understand that from the outset. And then we can have more honest conversations about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And th- th- there was the classic thing that I always uh, complain to you about where like the – Someone takes an obvious stance on on Twitter and then everyone jumps behind them and gives them a rah-rah pat on the back and round of applause. And it's like and, – and then like the guy who stands up and is like, uh, actually, this yeah. is a little more complicated than that. And that guy gets shredded. Like it's, it's, it's the textbook – it's the textbook case, and which is actually a good segue to this next situation because I think – you know, uh, uh, we're going to talk about this uh, report that came out today with uh, uh, Adrian Wojnarowski having to do with the player vaccinations. And, you know, I think it's extremely important, like coming into this. And this is something that you and I have talked about in other podcasts that like there is a long, dark history as it comes to the treatment of African-Americans in the medical medical community. That's important. But I, but I also think like, you know sometimes we have a tendency to draw false equivalencies in those cases. Like I remember there was a big uh, thing that came out during the uh, uh, during the Disney bubble where they're like, they're like, Oh, I don't like the optics of having, you know, police officers off duty cops that are guarding the entrances to the bubble. And you're like, well, like actually <laughs> like they're not there to guard the players. They're there to guard the people that are maybe trying to break the bubble to get in the bubble. Okay. Like that's like, I get the point you're trying to make, but I feel like this isn't the hill to die on. And I've, that's kind of the, 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 the opinion that I have on this. Like I understand the idea of, of not wanting to do a PSA, for all of the reasons that we discussed uh, in the past. But I do think it's okay to tell the players or to ask the players to be realistic about taking the vaccine just individually for themselves. Like when in the report, it says that, that the NBA sending out like an education doctor to go around to all these teams and sit down with them. And I do think like, again, at the PSA thing, totally different debate that can get ugly and the optics are great, but I do think it's okay for the players to pressure the, or for the owners to pressure the players into taking the vaccine because it's literally like in their best interest. It's in their best interest, no matter how you look at it, especially when you factor in all of the bad things that we've seen, even young athletes experience post COVID or during COVID when they get the real illness. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, Jason Tatum's talking about it right now, how he's still, he's still getting fatigued more quickly than he ever really has in his life. And he's 23 years old, 22 years old, something like that. And, you know, probably as fit as basically anybody in the world that is 23 years old and he got a bad case of COVID and he's still struggling to, to breathe sometimes from it. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. you said you went through something similar when you got it. 
right? And you're in your late 20s. I, I'm still experiencing some lingering fatigue, but I can't mm-hmm. tell if it's literally the same lingering fatigue that every human has been experiencing around 2 p.m. every day their entire life or if it's post-COVID stuff. But I right. can tell you that it was real. Like it was a real, it kicked my butt worse than any illness I've ever had. And 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 I, I'm, you know, there are a lot of young people who've had it worse. We even heard about the kid from Florida who had yeah. the heart inflammation that caused his heart to, uh, uh, I think you, I can't remember the exact details, but the- Yeah, the Keontae Johnson. Died. Yeah, yeah, Keontae really Johnson. Like, it, it the just, family, the family did come out and say recently that that wasn't COVID related. I don't know. Oh, they did. I didn't see that. That happened like maybe a week ago. I remember seeing the the news break, and then I read a little bit of the article. Um, they did say it wasn't COVID related. I don't. I mean, maybe they made the wrong determination. I don't want to speculate. Is my point. That's uh, classic. But, that's classic. Like the the way scarier version of the story everybody sees, but then like mm-hmm. the 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 like the real version of the story comes out that's way less scary and like no one sees it. That's exactly that's life. exactly. Um, I, as far as the All Star Game goes and, and players getting vaccinated, I, it's just a really tough topic, man. For all the things that you said at the outset, just kind of the dark history with um, Black Americans in the medical medical community here. Um, especially it, it really becomes how concerned do we want to be about the optic? Cause it, it, at the end of the day, you're probably getting white owners telling black players to take a vaccine and, and that still doesn't look great. Like I, I still, that still makes me like a little bit queasy and so uneasy, I, I, agree, I agree you know, with that. I, I agree. I think though, like, again, it's like, I, I think there's a, there's a difference between empathy and like uh, and like kind of like letting your emotions dictate your uh, 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 dictate your decisions because like it's important. Sure. This is not we're asking the black players to take the vaccines first. This is not mm-hmm. we're asking the black players to participate in a clinical trial. This yep. is oh, tens of thousands of people have been tr- tested by this, with this vaccine in a clinical trial. The, it has been approved by the CDC. It's been approved by the federal government. It's been uh, uh, approved by the FDA. It's been uh, already given to almost every emergency worker in the United States of America. We're at about over 13 percent right now in terms of people who have received at yeah, least one ex- dose of the vaccination. Exactly. And so I think it's OK to be like we have a checkered history with this stuff. And these are the facts about this individual case. And so, like, where, where I do agree with the people that are pushing back is the, 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 the uh, PSAs. Like, that's mm. weird. Like, like, hey, can you guys go and do this on television to try yeah. to talk to your communities so that they're not scared? Like, that, I think, can get ugly really fast. Uh, I, and I agree with. But the simple act of saying, hey, guys, it is in the best interest of our league for you guys to be vaccinated so that you don't have some awful uh, health issue with the actual virus itself. And so that we can stop having suspensions and get 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 through our schedule. Also, here's all of the medical facts that show that it's safe. I think that's okay. I don't have yeah. an issue with the doing that. Is all totally. I, I mean, you can frame it as the same way that when you go off to college, you're supposed to get vaccinations, right? Mm-hmm. And it is a little bit different. And I do understand the apprehension because this is a vaccine that was basically produced in 12 months, and it did not have the normal clinical trials that any other vaccine would have and they did some different things it's mrna versus kind of your classic vaccine like they, there are i think a lot of reasons for apprehension uh, just relative to getting a, nor- a normal vaccine quote unquote but it, it is definitely in the best interest of the league to do this and, and for like this season to continue at the pace they want it to and for the playoffs to start in may and for there to be less covid delays and covid postponements and 
I mean, Charlotte and San Antonio are going through one right now. They've each missed their last two games, and they might miss their games this weekend. That's going to continue to happen if, you know, that we don't have more players get, or any players get the vaccine, right? So, yeah, it, it is It is definitely in the best interest of the league to do it. It's just the optics are, are really, really shaky. And I do understand the stance of the players, too. This is one of those things where I'm probably not going to come down hard on either side because I I truly do understand both sides here. Whereas, like, the last situation we talked about, the Draymond thing, I was probably a little bit more opinionated about it. This yeah. is just this is one of those things where it's like, look, man, if you want to get it, great, get it. If not, I totally understand where you're coming from. Because I think the apprehensions that a lot of them have are the same apprehensions that a lot of Americans have about getting the vaccine right now. And that's not to say I'm an anti-vaxxer or anything like that. But point being, like, this is something that we we really don't have a lot of data on. Mm-hmm. And and for somebody like me who relies on being analytical and data for a lot of my approach to life, that is something that is a little bit scary. Mm-hmm. But point being, if the league wants to continue at the correct pace, then yeah, they should absolutely push the players to do this. The PSA stuff is weird, but definitely they should have the, as many players are that are willing to get the vaccine to get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see because like this, this was something I tweeted about earlier, but I don't think that there's actually a, a, a large number of players afraid to take the vaccine. I don't think that that's the case. I think that if didn't you Woj say them, didn't Woj say that there was a good amount of resistance from the players? Do you think that's the, so? That's I think more of a leverage thing. I think the I think the resistance was more directed towards the PSAs, which I get. And, and okay. it, he specifically said in his piece basically that they're tentative, especially in light of them being forced to go to the all-star game in Atlanta. So now I don't have data on this, but my guess would be that the majority of the pushback in this piece is more directed towards leverage in hopes of getting the all-star game canceled so that they can have more time off in the middle of the season. That's just my guess. Like there, because everything in life is about leverage, especially when you look at these, these pieces, which is are, are basically reporting, right? So like somebody's going to Woj and saying, I need you to write this piece. And my guess is that in this case, it's the owners and Woj probably went to Michelle Roberts and was like, what do you guys want to say in this piece? And I'm sure Michelle Roberts was like, we don't love the, the way this looks in light of what, uh, they're trying to get us to do in Atlanta. And then here come, you can kind of like try to draw the picture from the, from the reporting. And, and I think that's, I think that's probably where, where this is going. But uh, like I said, I think there's probably an agreement to be had, like get, sit down at a table with these guys be like, you know, uh, uh, do you, uh, uh, are you interested in, in uh, making a deal? Uh, do you guys want to maybe consider giving up the all-star game, but in return, we get you all vaccinated in, in early March as part of an ad campaign. Because I think the important part of the ad campaign is, you know, as is usually the case, there's an ulterior motive to every charitable contribution that that, that most big businesses do, you know? Like, and, and in this case, like, the the I think the NBA is saying, like, if we have to wait for the public to get it, it then we have to wait, potentially, Fauci was saying, potentially to late April, early May. Yep. which which might be too late to necessarily help the regular season. It would be in time for the playoffs, but not much else. So I guarantee you the league was like, what if we use these PSAs as an excuse to do it in March? And basically now we're working with the state governments and it's like a we can skip the line a little bit as part of these PSAs. So that'll be the the, the, the interesting thing to kind of figure out what they're working on behind the scenes. 
Because that would be my guess. Because I, they're never in a million years would the players agree to do those PSAs just for poops and giggles. Like it's got to no. be for has to be for something uh, having to do with uh, uh, beating the line. And they did mention easing COVID restrictions on teams that do or players that do get the the vaccination. So I mean, yeah, it's all leverage play, and mm-hmm. we'll see where it goes, man. It's a weird situation. Just the fact that we're even here to begin with, where we're talking about whether players need need to get vaccinated for an NBA season to continue. So it's just weird. Right? It's all unforeseen and it's, it's nothing that anybody has really experienced before. So yeah, I don't know. I, I think the best thing would be for silver just to actually have a conversation with the guys in the players association, which is that even happening? It seems like he's always just trying to like channel messages through Michelle Roberts, instead of just actually sitting down at a table with the people who matter and trying to make decisions. At least if I'm just reading the between the lines in the articles, I could be totally wrong. Yeah, but it just I will always, always jump to conclusions. Yeah, it just always seems like he's pushing the message to somebody else and then hoping it gets relayed correctly. Well, you and I, it's like we talked about earlier. It's just the, it's the classic case of uh, of people letting too leaving too much to the imagination when they when they when they release any sort of, of snippet of information rather than just coming out and saying what you think. You know, like that yep. that was the ironic part about the Kyrie decision earlier in the year. It's like, okay, well, I'm not going to talk to the media. But it's like, okay, well, that's that's going to make things worse actually because now everything they say about you is going to be some sort of pontification having to do with, you know, uh, uh, what they think you're thinking. You know, It's I mean? a referendum on him as a human being instead of just him saying what he thinks. Ex- exactly. Uh, but let's talk some basketball. So uh, uh, basically you and I talked about before the season that we thought that the Lakers were in their own tier. Um, that no one was going to be able to uh, beat them if they were healthy because of the the offseason acquisitions that they made that improved their offense. And just because of LeBron peaking and Anthony Davis making some strides in the bubble, that was kind of the, the, the uh, reasoning behind all of that. So then we get into the season and Anthony Davis doesn't really look like himself. And there was a lot of guessing as to what was causing that. And uh, uh, then we kind of figure out that it's, it was related to a lower leg injury that he's been dealing with most of the year, which makes sense because, you know, they had just started playing, uh, stopped playing two months ago before the start of the season. So theoretically it shouldn't have been that hard for Anthony Davis to get back in shape. And so we got 23 games of him. And in those 23 games, he looked like a shell of himself. And so now he's going to be managing this injury. He's going to be out for at least a month, but there's basically a couple different ways that this could go South for the Lakers. One, Anthony Davis could come back and he could not look like himself and still kind of just be a shell, a certain percent shell of himself for the entire season, including the playoffs, or it could become one of those things where he never actually comes back and he ends up missing the playoff run. So this, this completely changes the whole uh, uh, contender situation. And what was in my opinion, a one to two or three team field is now kind of like a six team field in my opinion. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the teams that I think now have a chance to win the title and then I want you to let me know if there's anybody that I left off. But So I have Brooklyn and Philly out east as teams that now have a definitive, clear-cut path to potentially win a championship. Then I have the Lakers and Clippers, and I have the Jazz and the Suns. Is there anybody that I didn't mention that you would add to that list as a team that, in the vacancy created by the Lakers' dominance, that you think could win a title this season? At, at, this, at this exact moment, no. But I think now a lot of teams are one move away, maybe one big move and one small move away from jumping into contention. Um, and this has been something that I have talked about with some Warriors Twitter people and, and in some discords, some Warriors discords. 
if Anthony Davis is out for an extended period of time, you got to push your chips in if you're the Warriors. Now, if you get Steph some actual help with the way he's playing, you can you have a puncher's chance at winning the title without that Lakers kind of domination hanging over your head. And which goes into a point of I think there's now a lot of teams in that situation, or at least more than there was. I think the Blazers could even be in that situation if Dame continues to play well and CJ comes back and Nurk comes back. Um, I think Boston, if they make the right move, could maybe be in that situation. It would probably be a little bit more complicated for them, but they do have a massive trade exception. They have a $27, $28 million trade exception which they can use. So they're now maybe a move or two away. Um, Maybe the Bucs even, if the Bucs make a move or two to improve their roster and Giannis starts to play a little bit better than than he has, honestly, then they have a chance. But point being, I, I agree with those six. But I also think there's other teams that are now very, very close that weren't even close to having a chance before this injury. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it may cause them to be more aggressive. Um, yes. Especially yep. if Anthony Davis comes. I'm not sure when the trade deadline is, but I would assume it's shortly March, after. It's, the, it's uh, March 25th this year. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so so theoretically, there will be maybe a week or two of games after the All-Star break. And yep. theoretically... I would like to see them be extra careful with AD and wait till the end of March to bring him back, but he might be back and people might get to have a look at how good he looks. But so let, let's go down through the Lakers teams. have. Yeah. The Lakers have no reason to rush him back. In my opinion, they already know what they already know what LeBron and AD look like as a playoff tandem. They've obviously changed the roster a little bit on the margins, but a lot of the same important pieces are still there. Um, I, I don't think chemistry will, will really be an issue for them, especially because when LeBron and AD are back, most of the possessions are going to run through them anyway, especially in a playoff series. So rushing him back in any manner would be the wrong move for them. Yeah, I agree. And and we already know that with Anthony Davis in there, they are uh, uh, an extremely dominant basketball team. But like we, we've talked about that version of the Lakers at length. So really quickly, let's go over uh, what, what it would look like, you know, without AD in this case. And so this is something that I talked a lot about uh, uh, over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, the, the Lakers have a lot of depth and they're actually kind of constructed in a way that can win without Anthony Davis. And I always pointed to their defense. Like everyone was so obsessed with Anthony Davis's impact on their defense because of his shot blocking ability, because of how mobile he is. If he switches onto a guard to be able to defend and things along those lines. Well, if you look at the roster now, they basically slide, slide Kuzma into the Anthony Davis spot. So now you're playing Marcus all at center who finally started making some shots last night. You have uh, Dennis Schroeder, who finally broke out of his slump last night. You've got Contavious Caldwell-Pope. You've got LeBron and Kyle Kuzma. That's a pretty good starting lineup. I, I would put them behind the Clippers starting lineup. I'd put, them, uh, I'd put them kind of in the same tier as the Suns and the Jazz in the Western Conference as a starting lineup. Their depth is actually, in my opinion, a bit better than what, uh, than what you're seeing from some of these other teams. Like Wesley Matthews is an NBA starter. He started for the Bucks last year. He's a really good NBA player who can defend and knock down shots. Montrez Harrell has been playing really well lately. Uh, there's something clicking for him on defense. And in my opinion, it's ball pressure. He's just doing, he's doing a lot better job of using his quickness and length instead of trying to be bigger than guys around the basket, which is just always going to end up uh, putting him on the losing side. But that's a starter caliber player. Marquise Morris, not so much. Alex Crusoe is a starting caliber player coming off your bench. So you literally have, in Talon Horton Tucker, borderline. I don't think yet, but will be a starter lever player potentially come playoff time or by next year. He, he, 
really good defensively at this point in the season. He, and he's one of those guys, one of those young players where when you watch him, it's like every week you're like, holy shit, he's getting better. Like mm-hmm. he's better than he was last week. And to me, that that is just something that tells me a guy has really good feel and really good basketball IQ. And those are the type of guys that tend to fare well in the playoffs anyway because they can make basketball reads and basketball plays instead of just being in a super defined, I just shoot threes and I can't dribble. You know, and I don't know how to do something when defenses are a little bit discombobulated. Um, so point being, yeah, he, he's an amazing player. They do have a ton of starter level talent on that roster. Yeah, he, he, he's dynamic. Like yeah. he's got almost like borderline Kawhi Leonard, Kawhi Leonard light level defensive ability. And he, what was funny is his defensive focus was trash to start the year. It actually cost him a game against Portland because uh, he uh, kept uh, losing the, uh, the little shooting guard they have. I'm blanking. But the uh, uh, literally – Gary Trent, yeah. Uh, but since then, he's come miles in terms of his defensive focus. He's got incredible length. He's super, super strong. Offensively, he's a little touch and go, but you don't need much from him uh, offensively on, on that roster. So when he has a great offensive game, it's kind of just like gold. It's kind of like the Caruso thing, you know? Uh, like if Caruso's making threes, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is a $15 million a year level player now. So, like, there's there's a lot of, uh, a lot of depth on that roster. And I talked about this. You know, he had another crazy dunk last night where he spun baseline in a play that he used to just go up and lay up over the last couple of years, and he just went up with two hands and dunked it over Malik Beasley. He's a pretty strong perimeter defensive player. And uh, uh, for about three games now, LeBron is starting to look vaguely 2018-esque in terms of his athleticism, just in the, his ability to jump and move laterally. Uh, he's ironically, he's kind of cooling off a little bit as a jump shooter, a little bit back more to, to normal, but his athleticism to me is the bigger thing. Cause I know 2018 LeBron is, is one of the best basketball players I've ever laid eyes on. So I like how good LeBron looks. They defend extremely well at the point of attack. They're not as good around the rim, uh, but they would go a lot more in on shooting with guys like Marcus Gasol and, and Mar- uh, Markeith Morris as, as, as stretch fives. So you could kind of see like a spacing uh, uh, thing open up for the, for, the, uh, for the Lakers. I feel about that team similar to how you kind of feel about the Warriors, but a little bit better. And what I mean by that is like that's one of those teams that against like the Jazz and against like the Suns or against Philly, like I could see uh, LeBron just being too much and, and putting them over the top. But if Anthony Davis can't play, they're not beating the Clippers. And they're definitely not beating Brooklyn, in my opinion. I just think I just think they that that is the talent differential that would be kind of too much of a chasm if Anthony Davis could not come back. Well, Brooklyn just specifically on the Brooklyn matchup, Brooklyn shoots a lot of jump shots, but James Harden is probably also the one one of the best rim attackers in the league. Kyrie is when he wants to be. Kevin Durant can when he wants to be. Not having Anthony Davis's presence inside would really, really hurt them in that series. Even though they do have phenomenal guys to guard the ball, if you don't have that back end to be that super elite defense against an offense like Brooklyn, you're going to have trouble. Because you, you need you need elite defenders at every position on the floor to beat that Brooklyn team. And that's why I like the Lakers in that matchup if everybody's healthy. But if they don't have AD, that changes the entire calculus of the series it becomes something entirely different but overall I, I do agree with your point on the Lakers there they're a team that has just a bunch of really good players and then you have LeBron on top of it so as long as LeBron's healthy with this roster they're still one of the top three teams in the West at the absolute worst and they're probably better than the Jazz because LeBron is LeBron and the Utah Jazz don't have LeBron so and I would pick the Clippers in a, in a theoretical series if AD isn't healthy but 
it's still going to go probably six, maybe seven games. And, you know, late game situations, I probably trust LeBron more, more than Kawhi or PG. So He's having a crazy clutch season. Like, I, 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 as of the other day, uh, he was in first, but I'll, I'll have to check. But I'm pretty sure he's still first in crunch time field goals made. Again, last night, like after uh, Anthony Edwards made a couple of huge threes to get it close, LeBron made a couple of huge plays down the stretch, two where he drove and kicked to uh, – one where he drove and kicked to a wide-open Marcus Hall for a three that he made, one where he drove and kicked to Kuzma. The closeout was sloppy, so Kuzma just drove in for a layup, like two plays created by LeBron. And then he hit another like crazy tough step-back jump shot that iced the game at the end of the game. And like it's almost like – he always was a good closer because he had the combination of decision making to go with his offensive ability, like as a scorer. But now it's like combined with this like unbelievable confidence that reminds me of Kobe Bryant in the late 2000s, where it just felt like every time the game was close, it just felt like he was going to make the shots to win the game. And I, and I really, I really think it's just like the the ultimate culmination of like all of the things that he does extremely well with supreme confidence late in games. And, and that's something that can flat out swing playoff series. So I, it's, if I was a Laker fan, obviously I'm a LeBron fan, but if I was a Laker fan, like I would be extremely excited about how well LeBron is playing at the end of these games. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. I watch a lot of late career MJ growing up that that was my guy. Jordan's my guy. I mean, we have the same last name. So he was obviously my favorite player, but I, I watched a lot of his, you know, second three Pete, Bulls runs growing up because a lot of those games were actually accessible on tape or, you know, on ESPN classic or whatever. It's that same kind of thing where it's like, I know I'm one of the greatest players ever. I have the confidence that I am. Everybody else knows that I am. And on top of that, I have all the accomplishments. There's nothing left for me to do. So there really is no pressure on LeBron at this point. It's all just kind of cherry on top. Whatever he does, it's just extending his own legacy. So I think the confidence and then combined with kind of just that no pressure situation he's going to be the best clutch player in the league probably. Mm. Yeah. It, 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 the, the best example of it was his game tying three that he made against OKC in the second matchup. He shot like shit that whole game uh, yeah. from the perimeter. And like for him to all of a sudden, like trust his shot enough to make the most important three of the game to send it to OT after he was like, I think, I think he was one for nine from three up to that point was just to me, it was just like the ultimate sign of like how far he's come in terms of his confidence in his shot late, late in games. There, um, there is a post championship glow. Like yeah, the, the sure. same thing happened with the Warriors in 15, 16. That's, I mean, partly they went 73 and nine because they were motivated by all the people saying their year before was fake. Mm-hmm. But Steph was like unequivocally a way more confident player the next year in clutch situations because he had done it on the biggest stage. When you've done it on the biggest stage and like recently, there is no bigger confidence giver than that. We see it mm-hmm. time and time again. Like, yeah, he, he's going to be the best player in any series they they probably are in. So that's mm-hmm. with that roster that might be enough, mm-hmm. especially if they defend. And, yeah. and like I said, look, going small. We see this with Steph and the Warriors. Like going small is just going to open things up for their spacing. Exactly. Uh, but like, let's segue to Brooklyn because you had you had mentioned uh, uh, Brooklyn. So in the event of uh, Anthony Davis not being, we I think we both agree that LeBron and Anthony Davis would kind of physically dominate Brooklyn if they got into a playoff series. But let's say Anthony Davis is out of the picture. Now all of a sudden, all you have to do is outscore Philly, who's a, a limited offensive team, and then you've got to uh, outscore the Lakers. Who are going to be limited offensively on a fact uh, as a result of the fact that they're down to basically one and a half dribble creators with LeBron and Dennis Schroeder. So, uh, how would you feel about Brooklyn? Let, let's talk about the whole thing. Like, 
How would Brooklyn get through Philly? And, and how would Brooklyn get through the Lakers? So this is a big if, but at this moment, if the Sixers are fully healthy and if the Nets are fully healthy, I think I would still pick, pick Philly. They were my preseason pick. I've, I've kind of stood with them so far throughout the season. Embiid has still been incredible when healthy. He is starting to miss more games, so that's maybe knocking his name out of the MVP conversation a little bit. Uh, but he's still unbelievable when healthy. So I still would side Philly in the potential matchup, but Brooklyn is closing that gap. Um, they are incredible offensively. Obviously, we all knew that was going to be the case, but I think some of the things that they've done have been really good for even being better than I might've imagined offensively. Like Harden is basically their point guard. And Kyrie talked about this. I'm, he said, I'm basically going to be the shooting guard. And I think that's the right move. Harden is the best passer on that team. He is the best decision maker. He's the best pick and roll guy. That is the guy who you want to have the ball in his hands. And, and playmaking has always been a weakness for Kyrie. We learned this from LeBron. So if absolutely you, having him play like the Kyrie to LeBron, but in this case, the James Harden is a proven method to win. Absolutely. And I think what we're seeing from Harden um, is that his best role was never to be a volume scorer. Houston just kind of did that, but he, in the modern NBA, he actually wasn't efficient for what he was doing. You know, he was shooting mid to low 40s from the field and mid 30s from three. Sure, in, in 2007, that's efficient because the defensive rules were different. Spacing was different. It was tougher to get shots at the rim. So shooting his percentage... True, his was, true shooting percentage was always super inflated by the, his but the free throws. to drop fouls. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and that, that ability goes away in the playoffs, right? So, but mm-hmm. he's... But point being, he was going up against players in 2018, 2019, not players in 2007. So the guys he's going up against, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, those are all guys who shoot high 40s, low 50s, maybe even mid 50s in the playoffs from the field. They're all shooting 35 plus from three. In Steph's case, he's shooting low 40s from three. Mm -hmm. And Harden's like way paling in comparison to them. So all the talk about him being the greatest scorer ever was maybe the most ridiculous conversation of all time. That's the one thing I'll always hold over Daryl Morey's head. That was the dumbest conversation ever. But Harden has been incredible since he's been there. He's only averaging 23 points a game only. You know, that's still a lot. He's averaging 11 assists per game, and I want to say around eight or nine rebounds. As of late, he's been scoring more too, I think. He has been. I I mean, he scored a bunch against Phoenix last night because, you know, Harden and, or or, um, excuse me, Kyrie and KD were both out. Mm -hmm. But he's taking less shots, and his splits right now are like, I want to say 49, 40, 80 something, right? He's more efficient because he's not shooting bad shots and he's playing in a role that actually suits his abilities instead of just taking, trying to be a volume scorer for lack of a better term. That's all he was trying to be. He wasn't actually trying to do things efficiently in Houston. He was just trying to get up as many shots as possible. Um, they, they look really good. I'm still, he's had a couple quotes by the way, over the last like week where he's made kind of passive aggressive comments about the way things were in Houston. And I want to be like, dude, it was your fault. Like it was yeah. you, <laughs> like, yeah. like, he, like he said something about how like we're a true team over here or something. I'm like, man, every one of those guys in Houston hated you because like, like they literally could, they, they came, they came just shy of saying, we're so glad James is gone. Like, and then there was another one where he said something similar, but like it, he just, I, I'm like, dude, look, I'm, I'm happy. You're happy now, but shut up about it. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> Everybody that went there basically hated it or not even not hated it, but I mean, Role guys, stars, nobody really enjoyed their experience playing there. And it all started from the top down. It started from him. Point being, I'm going to give him some credit because I have been very harsh on Harden. I said he wasn't a top 10 player in the league. 
He's obviously a top 10 talent, but I thought he hadn't been a top 10 player because he had leaned so far into Mori Ball that he had screwed over a lot of his own effectiveness by being a guy who was just basically super inefficient because of the volume of shots he was taking. He's been amazing since he's been been in Brooklyn. He's playing in the correct role. And I think if, if they do continue to do this, if they continue to play in this manner, especially when all three guys are healthy, they're beating almost every over 500 team that they play. Kevin Durant is taking less shots. He's taking less of an offensive role. He's one of the best on ball guys in the league right now in terms of field goal percentage defended. Um, I want to say he's holding his um, opponents under 40% from the field when he's the one-on-one matchup. So he's doing a very good job defensively. Um, They still do, in my opinion, need more defensive help. They're going to need actual rim protection at some point because Joel Embiid still will absolutely destroy them in a series if they do match up. But I am much more optimistic on them than I was even two or three weeks ago when the trade was initially made because I think we were both very low on it. I hope they sign Andre Drummond. That would be that would be my dream scenario is for them to sign Andre Drummond because I think it would be the ultimate like catastrophic mistake. Just uh, because like I really do think that uh, uh, that there are going to be like obvious decisions that that aren't the right decision, while there are uh, some like some other kind of like lower profile guys that they could find like a Dwayne Dedman or somebody like that, that, that I think would be much better for what they're actually asking that player to do. Um, you think, you think Drummond would just command too many minutes, even if it's on a buyout? No, I, I don't think, I don't think Drummond plays a winning brand of basketball for sure. a, for a contender. Like I think, I think here's the thing with Andre Drummond. Once every couple of weeks, he decides to get 20 rebounds and 20 points off offensive rebound putbacks, but he's very much like Dwight Howard in the fact that he demands the ball in the low block when he has no business having it down there. As far as his defense goes, he's a little bit of a, a shot block chaser in the sense that, like any decent high IQ team, like Hassan Whiteside, exactly. like Hassan Whiteside, where he's just jumping at everything, and now you're giving up like eight offensive rebounds because he's jumping at shots he shouldn't be jumping at. This is all you need to know. Like uh, uh, Cleveland's not going to be able to get any asset for him. In fact, they may have to pay to get rid of him or buy him out. And so there's no incentive for them to get rid of him other than the fact that they know Jared Allen is way better. And, and what does Jared Allen do? Like Jared Allen's not a post-up player. Jared Allen is not taking threes. Jared Allen, all they do is they, they can rely on Jared Allen to be a, like a, uh, a presence around the basket defensively who's smart with his length instead of like aggressive with his length. And then on the uh, offensive end, he's got a bunch of vertical gravity as a, as a lob catcher. Like the center position, unless you're using him like AD as a primary scoring option, the center position is all about doing dirty work, and I don't think that that's necessarily something that Andre Drummond would accomplish for them. I still can't believe Brooklyn gave Allen up. I oh, I know. I can't so, believe okay. it. I was really confused about this, and you and I were both really confused about this. But I heard they somebody, had to to make the trade work. Somebody told me the other day that Cleveland threw another first-round pick to Houston. Okay. In that trade. And I'll have to look gotcha. into that. But like, if Cleveland threw a first-round pick to Houston, you can safely assume that that was in payment for Jared Allen. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I think we're, I think we're in agreement about Brooklyn as far as like what their path looks like, which is like Kevin Durant defending better, getting a decent buyout guy, you know, James Harden embracing the playmaking role, Kyrie Irving basically becoming 2016 Kyrie Irving in, in his role in the offense. Um, uh, as far as Philly to go, goes though, I agree with you. I think that, I think that Joel Embiid is such a like unbelievable mismatch for them. Uh, and I think they have so much length. And I think Ben Simmons is probably the best defender in the league right now at, at, for guarding uh, for guarding Kevin Durant. And the Matisse Thybul is a problem. They've got they've got such a Tobias. A, a great, 
size. They've got so much length defensively. Mm-hmm. Ironically, the guy that would worry me for them is, is Kyrie Irving because I don't think they have yeah. someone who can stay in front of Kyrie. Uh, but that I, I do think that they have the, the two-way play mixed with the physical offensive dominance to cause them a lot of problems. I just think and, they would really muck that series up. I think they would just sure. – Ugly, just really ugly, and I think they have enough shooting around Embiid and Simmons now to make it work. If mm-hmm. if both Seth Curry and Tobias are healthy, I think they have just enough shooting to get it done. If one of those two guys goes down, then they're screwed. Even if it's just Seth, who's a role player, but they need the shooting that both him and Tobias provide. No, I agree. And uh, they the big thing is going to be the Anthony Davis situation because I think I think. I literally think that the Lakers are the much better version of the Sixers. They, they have very similar things that they bring to the table in this like big playmaking forward going with this like dominant mismatch big man in a great defense full of a bunch of uh, – there, there's a little bit of difference in the way they defend. The Lakers are more ball pressure oriented with less size and the, the, the Sixers are more length uh, oriented and just kind of swallowing up distance with long arms. But uh, but I think the Lakers are a better version of them. So they would, in my opinion, depend on a injury to Anthony Davis in order to actually come out on top in the in the finals. Um, what do you think about uh, uh, what do you think about Utah right now? I mean, my position on Utah hasn't changed. They still look amazing. They they're just they're like I said a couple of weeks ago. They're playing a brand of basketball that I've never seen just in terms of the actual efficiency that they're making three-point shots with across the roster, right? Even even a team like the Warriors, who you obviously had Stephen Clay and KD, it was really concentrated, their shooting abilities, right? It wasn't like this team-wide thing where you have six, seven, eight guys that can make three-pointers. It It's a different type of stress on your defense, right? The, the Warriors version was like more star-centric, where it's like you had these three guys you really had to worry about, and everybody else on the team was basically just trying to get them shots at all times, Whereas with the Jazz, it's like six, seven, eight guys who are all able to shoot and all able to make decisions. So one bad step by a defensive player, one wrong assignment, one miscommunication, it starts kind of that cavalcade of events where that ends in an open three or a dunk for Gobert, basically, or a wide open layup for one of their their perimeter guys attacking the rim. So, I, I mean, my concerns remain the same about their playoff ceiling. But in the case that... Anthony Davis is not a factor and maybe Paul George too, because he's kind of sort of injured right now. He has the Bonadima thing in his foot. Nobody's really sure what's going on there. I think, I think it's a perfect comp to the Anthony Davis injury. Like, yeah, like, we don't know. So it's almost exactly for us to pretend like it might not be great. You know what I mean? And he, Paul George also has a history of coming back from his injuries with no rhythm. Mm-hmm. and not playing particularly well. Mm-hmm. That was one of those big things this offseason is like, oh, I was healthy. I got to train with my guy. Well, it's like, okay, well, now you're just taking a, a month off. We'll see how that disrupts your rhythm. Yep, exactly. So Utah definitely has more of a chance if neither one of those guys are a factor, meaning Anthony Davis or Paul George. I mean, I could see I could see Donovan Mitchell getting hot enough to beat anybody in a playoff series because we actually have seen it before. Mm-hmm. Right, it, it's not something that's well. Like, we've seen it against Russell Westbrook, and we've seen it against, against Paul George, and we've seen it against Jamal Murray. Although not enough to actually win the series. Sure, but, right. We haven't seen it against LeBron James. That's not what I'm saying. But we know that he is capable of getting hot for a long period of time, especially in you know in big moments like that. That is not something he he is unable to do. And it wasn't just one series. He's done it multiple times now. So and he looks better now than he did in the past. Oh, absolutely. He's a better player. Um, but, yeah, they, they definitely have more of a chance if Anthony Davis and Paul George aren't playing. This is, this is their window to a title, 
right? This is a team like the Jazz. You're probably never going to win it if everybody's healthy, but you get some injury luck. Now you got a chance. Now you can rely on your system and you hope that, that your star is good enough to get the job done against other rosters that are depleted to what they normally are. So, yeah, I haven't moved on them at all. They're just an outstanding basketball team and I love watching them. So I think, I think it's important to understand and, and respect the fact that they're winning a lot. Like, I, I don't think that's easy to do. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's worth acknowledging that. I think there's a clear reason why. They're the best three-point shooting team in the league on offense, and they literally lead the league in opponents' three-pointers made. So they're doing a great job of kind of doing the reverse analytics thing. Like, we're, mm-hmm. gonna, we're going to uh, take advantage of it on this end and take it away on the other end. However, you know, I do think that they have, like, uh, it, there's a little bit of a gap between what their actual outcomes uh, have been versus what their roster would tell you about them as a team. You know, for instance, like, they're not the only team in the league that has guys that can knock down shots and defend. But yet somehow Joe Ingles and, and uh, Bogdanovich and, and O'Neal are kind of exceeding expectations in that regard. They're not the are, only are guys. They, in- though? Are they? Th- those guys, well, not O'Neal. O'Neal's not like a 40% career three-point guy, but Bogdanovich and Ingles basically are. Those are guys who shoot 40% basically every year. No, I, I agree. But at the same time, like there are other teams in the league that, that have good three-point shooters who can defend. What I'm, tr- what I'm trying to talk about is matchups here. So I'm, I'm sure. going somewhere with this. So basically with the, with the matchups, I, the way I look at it is like they also have like a, a good playmaking guard mixed with a good scoring guard. And then they have a guy who can protect the rim. And then they have a really aggressive scorer off the bench. That's like the, the, the really quick like breakdown of the way their team works. They do not have a crazy mismatch problem that they can make in a series no. other than Donovan Mitchell, who is more or less the same archetype of player that you see uh, in a, in, on a half dozen different good teams in the league, which is this really good scoring guard that if you go under screens, he can shoot from three. And if you go over the top, he's really athletic and get to the rim and score. So like, it's not like he presents, you know, some sort of monstrous playmaking or a uh, 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 mismatch. And on the, the flip- nights where he's not making shots, he's just not as effective. Like he uh-huh. doesn't find other ways to affect the game really. Exactly. And, and, and he's not a great playmaker. Like he's a average, he's an average playmaker. Um, so what, what I, what I kind of take away from that is like, I try to like, you have to look at like the Atlanta Hawks from 2015 or like the Raptors from 2018 as examples. Like when you looked at the, the success that they were having on the court, beating a lot of teams, winning a lot of games, so much of it had to do with effort and making shots and and just a really good coaching and all of this stuff. But then when it came to the playoff time, there were obvious deficiencies in the way that their roster was constructed. Okay, so th- that's that's what I think is okay to point out with the, this Jazz team. And it's, it's simply put, like I don't think Donovan Mitchell is as good at what he does as the other guys he's going to run into around the league. I don't think Mike Connolly is as good at what he does as the other guys he's going to run into. Gobert is fine, but you and I both are kind of a little, I think, I think we both respect what he does, but I think he's both uh, like uh, John Hollinger was that the other day, put it, said, him I was just LeBron. about to say that. Did you hear Did him? You, he put him top three in MVP. He said that him and LeBron had the same case. His media, pa- his media pass should be revoked. That's the most Ooh. ridiculous fucking thing I've ever heard. <laughs> in my life. Are you kidding me? No, it was, it, it was bad. And like, basically this is his whole thing was like, he's the best player on the best team in the league. And I'm like, first of all, I don't think he's the best player on the best team in the league, but uh, th- regardless, like, you get what I'm where I'm going with this. Like I don't think that I don't think that they do a thing that is going to scare the best teams in the league when they can face them seven times. And most importantly, I don't think they've faced 
the two teams that I'm really interested in seeing them play are Phoenix and the Lakers. And we're going to see the Lakers play them here in a couple uh, in a couple weeks, which is going to be interesting because even though Anthony Davis is not playing, I think they, the, the Lakers are, uh, I think, second or third, I think third in the league in taking away opponents' three-point shots. So they're a team that's going to force the, uh, the Utah Jazz off the line. And it'll be really interesting to see yeah, how they audible to that. And then Frank Vogel is so good at coming up with defensive game plans. And then the, the late, you're going to get a, a great effort from the Lakers in that game because they're going to have something to prove. That'll be a really interesting one. And then Phoenix is the other one because Phoenix is one of the best teams at chasing teams off the three point line as well. Chris Paul is great at the point attack defensively. They've got all their, their wings on the perimeter are actually every bit as good defensively as, as the kind of wings that, uh, 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 that Utah is going to throw at him. So those are that. Those are the matchups. I would just. I would like to see a team try to make Utah do something different, kind of like the Milwaukee Bucks last year. It's like, what are you going to do when Rudy Gobert gets consistently pulled out of the paint? What are you going to do when all of a sudden all your catch and shoot threes aren't there? What are you going to do? Like the, 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 that's going to be the thing to see. Like they beat Milwaukee the other day. Milwaukee famously just lets you shoot threes. So that was a recipe for disaster from the beginning. You know what I mean? So that'll be the. the I just want to see how they adapt, because in theory, if you actually look at the way they're constructed, they're not really constructed to be a team that succeeds in the playoffs, if that makes sense. Yeah. To be clear, like I said, I still doubt their playoff ceiling, right? Who they can actually be in the playoffs. I would still pit the Lakers and the Clippers over them in a series. And if the Warriors make a couple moves to improve their roster, I'm picking the Warriors over them too. I'm sorry. Steph Curry is so much better than anybody on that team. I think they would beat that team. Point being... They, they are a tremendous team, and we, in the same way that we owed the 2015 Hawks, you know, a certain amount of um, credence for playing as well as they were, we owe the same to the Jazz. And I think the Jazz's best player, in terms of just being a pure scorer, is better than that 2015 Hawks team had, right? For so sure. if you're just going off of that model, they have more of a puncher's chance in a series against an, an actual they really, really have good a team. a puncher's chance because Donovan, yeah. Donovan Mitchell is always like a one in four chance of looking like Dwayne Wade on any given night. So I'm exactly. not undercutting that. I'm not undercutting that at all. Um, let's talk about Phoenix, though. So, yep. uh, uh, well, I'll let you go first on this one. What, what, it, what would it look like for Phoenix to, to make it all the way? Because this is a team I'm extremely high on. Yeah, they keep looking better, man. They, they look better almost oh, every they time I – choke away a game. And yeah, that, that was bad. That was, that was really bad last night. It's – Chris Paul has a few too many of those on his record. <laughs> he does. He has way too many of those on his record, and – they're, Phoenix is starting to grow restless about DeAndre Ayton. I, I think a lot of he's a, he's a nice player, and I think he's going to be a nice NBA player for a long time. But you picked him over Luka Doncic, like that. At some point, like the the frustration is going to boil over, and like it's going to get. I think it might get a little bit ugly there, just because of the pressure that fans almost put on the organization. Um, even though I wouldn't say the Phoenix Suns fan base is a huge one, but point being, like it, it could have turned into an ugly situation. But, do you think do you think Devin Booker's better than Donovan Mitchell? Yes. I do. I think I, a, I think he's significantly better. Yeah, I, I don't even think it's close, really. I think he's I think he's the type of scorer that can be the best scorer in any playoff series against any player in the league besides like maybe three guys. An actual mismatch. Like one that yes. would freak other teams out. Oh, because because he can get a bucket in like legitimately any way. Like he can pull, he can do threes off the dribble, off of off ball movement. He can go into the mid post and post smaller guys up and get buckets. He can go to the rim. Like he he keeps getting better at finishing around the rim every year. And he he's one of those like classic examples. 
this year specifically where like his numbers are actually down compared to other years, but he's a better player because he's a winning context. Yeah. It's in a winning context and he's taking a step back and he's giving Chris Paul more playmaking responsibilities. And he's like letting other guys take more shots. And I mean, he shouldn't have done that in years prior because the roster sucked, but point being his numbers are worse, but he's, you know, he's learning how to be a better player because he's taking on less responsibility in a good way. Um, yeah. I mean, is Chris Paul better than Mike Conley? Yes, absolutely. I mean, not even a question. And their wings are probably on pars with the Jazz. So I see the point that you're making. You're saying the Suns would probably beat the Jazz in a series. If you, I'm not, were, if you were the Warriors, would you be more scared of, of the Suns or of the Jazz? I think, I think it's a clear difference, don't you? Probably the Suns. Yeah, I'd say the Suns. Um, yeah, they just. I think their their best two players are just better than the Jazz's best two players, and that's what playoff series come down to a lot of the time. Especially if your best two guys are better than their best two guys, which would be the case with Phoenix and Utah for sure. And even though Chris Paul does have his history of of playoff blunders, and just like last night, I still think there's like the outside chance he does like the 2011 Dirk thing, where like Dirk before 2011 was this guy who always choked in the big moment. Right. And then all of a sudden it was like a switch flipped and he, he had like a three series run where he was one of the best closers that we've ever seen in that, in the, um, I mean, they, they beat the Spurs in round one and then they kicked the crap out of the Lakers, the thunder. He had like four late game situations where he was just making impossible shot after impossible shot to close out those games. And same thing against the heat. Like, and I'm not saying Chris Paul would do something as crazy as Dirk did in those playoffs, but just, I think he might really not just, out of the question. It isn't out of the question because he is that great. He's one of the five, six greatest point guards of all time. And when he's on, because he was on for a lot of the game that last night, he's just incredible to watch. He's such a good basketball player. He understands the game. Up, I think he's up over t- like 20 and seven over yeah. his last 10 games. And he's basically 50, 40, 90, five, like, like something in some, some crazy, like he is peaking again right now somehow. He's the only guy, like he, the only guy I would say that controls the flow of a game better than him in the league right now is LeBron. Mm-hmm. I agree. That's it. And, and the only guy he's who he's mini LeBron. That's what he is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's a six foot version of LeBron, and he was always going to play himself into shape this season. I thought like he wasn't going to come in. I think that's probably why his numbers were low to start the year. Um, he just wasn't going to be in shape coming into the year just because of how weird it is. Like he's very involved with the players' association. Obviously, like the dude's got a lot on his plate, so he's probably like, I'll work my way into shape. At the beginning of the season, I'll be good by game 20 or 30. And that's what we're seeing. He looks awesome. Devin Booker, like you said, is better than anybody that Utah has for sure. So they might, I really hadn't thought about it in this manner, but they really might have more of a chance than Utah to go to the finals. They're just, they have a lot of guys who have never been there. Aiton's really young. Booker's really young still. Um, Obviously, Cam Johnson, who's playing a lot of minutes, is very young. Um, Mikhail Bridges is very young. And those guys are all really good players, but they're still just really young. They're all like 23, 24 and under. And that's just, if you're relying on that many guys that are that young, it's just going to be tough to make a deep playoff run. It always is. Like, if you just look through the history of the league, that doesn't really happen. I agree. Uh, I think Chris Paul and Jay Crowder add a little bit more of a veteran presence. That sure. Because the, the Lakers, for the record, have the same problem. I mean, they have a lot of young guys that they depend on. Uh, you know, Anthony Davis is still in his 20s. Dennis Schroeder's in his 20s. Like, Caruso and THT are super young. There are a lot of young guys kind of mixed in uh, that they're that – they're, I think KCP's only like 27 or something like that, too. Yeah. Um, uh, regardless – One of those guys who's been in the league for, you feel like, 15 years, but he's only oh, 27, yeah. 28 years old. Oh yeah. Oh well, yeah. That's that's just it's like the Brad Beal thing. Ever since they, you know, we ever since these guys have been, especially the guys in the Eastern Conference that were playing in like big marquee playoff games when they were like 22 years old, it just they're burned in your memory from a young age. 
Um, anyway, like I'm super high on the Suns because they check all of these boxes that 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 I believe in in championship contenders. And I've talked to you about it a million times, so I don't want to dive into it. But it's just that: can do you have alphas that can go toe to toe with the best players in the league? Can you defend at an extremely high level? And can you uh, um, are you versatile offensively? Like, can you attack offensively in different ways? They're touching and, top five in defense now, aren't they? They're right around like top five. I'll, I'll check, but I think they're I think yeah. they're already in the top five. Yeah. But, that's what I thought. Uh, Anyway, the, the I've always kind of uh, used those landmarks as the things that I use to evaluate regular season success. The Suns are sixth in defense right now. Yep. Um, but I, I use those as, as the lens to, to kind of evaluate that because, you know, you and I talk all the time about how the regular season doesn't matter. And there are a million, literally a million examples in NBA history of a team that had great success in the regular season. And for whatever reason, it didn't translate to playoff success. And and there are a lot of reasons for that. We're not going to get into it. But I think that's why that's why we're having this conversation. If it was who had the best team in the regular season just always won the title, then we would uh, then these debates would be meaningless because it would just be like, hey, let's look at the standings. Okay, the standings say the Bucks are the best team in the league. They were on pace for 67 wins. Oh, wait, they they lose in the second round and kind of get boat raced because they're actually not built for for that type of uh, of matchup. And you know, when I look at the Suns, it's like I know that Devin Booker, like there's only a handful of players that can make him really work in the entire league. You know, like maybe a Ben Simmons, maybe a LeBron, maybe someone like that. But like the, the if he ends up on any smaller guard, he's taking him into the post. Anybody who tries to, you know, if he gets him in ball screen situations, he can get him on his hip and get into the mid range and take little like sidestep and step back jump shots. You you went over that earlier. He's got such a versatile scoring uh, uh, ability. And then Chris Paul, all of the things that he brings to the table that we just talked about, they have tons of length and shooting on the wing. Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson are both shooting the ball really well. Jay Crowder has been hot, hot and uh, uh, hot and cold. Uh, but you know he's he's a more he's as good of a uh, a playoff wing as you'll you'll see in the league as far as role players go. They've got uh, uh, and then DeAndre Ayton. You know the, the the thing with him is he's he's hot and cold. But it'll be interesting to see how a player like him uh, performs when there's a little bit more stakes. Because uh, I remember this, like I watched him very closely at Arizona. He's got a little bit of an ego. He's got like in a good yeah. way, like he's confident in himself. He believes that For he's sure. one of those guys, you know. And at Arizona, he played well in the biggest games. Like yeah. I, I remember that just from being a, a fan uh, of of the Wildcats and watching them play. Like I always felt more confident in him in a bigger game than I did in others. And that's just a textbook. Like some guys, it's like the Rondo thing. It's like some guys are just wired in a way that they have hard. They have a hard time getting up for for meaningless games. And physically, like. He's about as good as you can do against Anthony Davis. He's a little bit young, obviously, but just in terms of like the lateral quickness, the length, the athleticism, kind of the whole encompassing package, he's got it. Like it is there. It's just can he tap into it consistently? And, and is he good enough mentally to kind of un- go through the slog of a seven game series? And we've all we've already seen that when they stagger Chris Paul and Devin Booker, it, it leads to success because both of them can kind of just run the show while they're on the floor. And as of late, although they started terribly, as of late, they're playing well when both of them are on the court. So it just it, they check all of the boxes. And like, you know, if I got into a playoff series watching a playoff series and I was worried about like, OK, we're, we're all these two teams are relatively evenly matched. So every game's coming down to the final 10 minutes. OK. And, uh, you know, in every fourth quarter there, you know, the scores are within five points going into the fourth quarter. And it really comes down to uh, who do I trust to to win four times out of seven? Devin Booker and Chris Paul or Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell. 
I'm going with uh, uh, Chris Paul and Devin Booker. And, and I think mm-hmm. we saw that from Jokic and Murray last year. Like they just, uh, even when they were blowing the 3 1 lead, the Jazz blew some late leads again in that. And, and I think, I, I, and it's not because Donovan Mitchell's bad. It's just that when you're going in the, into the playoffs, especially in the Western Conference, it's like everybody's good. You know, like everybody's good. The, the Lakers might be rewarded with Steph Curry for getting the one seed if they happen to get the one seed. Or the Jazz might, might be rewarded with Steph Curry. Congratulations, you get Steph Curry for seven games. Like that, that's the nature of the Western Conference. And, and I think like, uh, I think it's okay to point out the fact that uh, like, there's a reason why we're surprised by how well the Jazz are playing. It's because sure. it doesn't really make sense for them to be as good as, as they have appeared to be here in, here in the early going. Yeah, the Ringer, somebody on the Ringer wrote an article the other day. I want to give credit where it's due. Um, it was Zach Cram, who does, who's a really big analytics guy, super into the numbers. He basically, the, the thesis of the article was the NBA is a make or miss league more than ever. It's just dependent on variance and are you making your shots or not? Because teams are shooting a lot of threes and most teams don't know how to defend threes. And I think his overall conclusion is somewhat correct, but in the playoffs, teams do know how to defend the three. They just take it away. Right? They just take away threes from your good shooters and they make you do something else. We see it every single year. So there are that's no probably open looks. There are no open looks. At defenses least. just lock in more, right? There, night to night in the regular season, it is hard to chase guys around for 48 minutes and defend 43 point shot attempts. But when you actually get into the weeds of it and game plan for it and say, okay, we're taking away this guy's, this guy likes to do this and this guy likes to do that to get his shots and we're going to leave these guys, we're not going to leave these other guys, it just becomes harder to create those open looks consistently. So that, that would be what Utah is going to run into. And then to piggyback off of that, Phoenix, all the things you've pointed to with Phoenix are correct. And Booker is like the best young scorer in the league, like not counting LeBron James or Kevin Durant since like Kobe. If you look at just the numbers, like the true shooting, the, the points per game, all that stuff, like it's those three, it's Kobe, Durant, LeBron, and Devin Booker over like the last 25 years in the post-MJ era. Like he's that good as a scorer. He's mm-hmm. incredible. And – Monty Williams is a phenomenal coach. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't get enough credit. That that franchise is still kind of like an organizational mess, but they made the right hire at the top. They hired the right guy. Like the culture has absolutely shifted there in basically an 18-month period to where they went from one of the worst situations in the league to where in the bubble they were like the most fun team to watch. And now they've come into this season and they're they're one of the best teams in the West. So I don't think it can be understated what a phenomenal job he's done. Um, and that and that also obviously matters in a playoff series. You know, having a really good coach who's willing to make adjustments, and it seems like he's the type of guy that would definitely do that. In a regular season where not many teams have been able to separate from the pack, the the Suns have managed to put a little bit of separation from the pack. And I'm talking about all yep. those teams that are hovering within a few games of 500. And and so I think I think they deserve credit. And like I'm just saying, like when we're splitting hairs, because all of this is splitting hairs. Like the Jazz, Lakers, and Clippers are all within a few games of each other. The Suns are only a few games behind that. Like the the if you look out east, like you know Brooklyn's like actually kind of in the middle of the pack with their record. So all of these teams have flaws. We're, we're splitting hairs. And all I'm saying is like when I when I'm splitting hair, like is you know, and again, we're not hating on the Jazz. Like the the this is. This is a proven thing in NBA history that every year there's that team that just wins a lot of games in the regular season and for whatever reason it doesn't translate. And usually there's a reason. It's like last year, you know, the the Bucks won a million games and, you know, uh, and it didn't translate to the playoffs. And there was a clear reason. Oh, wait, their elite high-end shot creation is not there. You know, 2018, 
you know, uh, the Toronto Raptors win 59 games and get swept by a bad Cavs team, you know, by a bad Cavs team. And, and like, literally that, that, that you look at that team and you're like, Oh wait, their alpha dogs can't go toe to toe with the biggest stars in the league. Like, like DeMar DeRozan is like way too passive in those types of moments. Like he, he just, he kind of plays worse than he does. Like anybody could have seen that writing on the wall. And it's not hard to kind of interpret those kinds of things. And so I think we have evidence of this being the case. You know, we gave some other examples earlier. We have evidence of this being the case. There there are a ton of examples. We're just trying to find out if the Jazz are that team this year. And I think it's okay to to guess that. Yep. Totally in agreement. 100%. So uh, real quickly before you go, because I know you got to go. The uh, uh, We didn't talk much about the Warriors but I, I made this point and I wanted to hear your response to it. So, you know, I think, you know, I think LeBron was unbelievable in 2018. Like, make no mistake, I'm not trying to undercut that at all. But there's the obvious backstory that they beat a pretty flawed Indiana Pacers team and then they beat that pretty flawed Celtics team. The, re- the weird, weird outlier was the 59-win Raptors that they just literally destroyed. And by the end of that series – like had mentally just put them into like oblivion. Uh, But, you know, I would say that that Indiana Pacers team and that Boston Celtics team would be somewhat equivalent to what you're going to see at the bottom of the West this year, teams in that seven to 10 range. And so I think it's important to understand that they almost lost both of those series. Uh, They trailed in the fourth quarter of the game seven against the Celtics. And then against the Pacers, they were basically like a crazy fourth quarter from LeBron and Kyle Korver from going down three, one. Uh, in game four in Indiana. So what I think is going to be interesting to see is like, I think, I think the 2018 LeBron thing has made people think that it is possible for Steph to maybe overcome some of this. But I, I think that it's very possible that Steph ends up in the play in and, and that it's going to be a couple of dog fights, uh, especially if he ends up in like a nine seed and he has to win twice. And I, and I think like people are going to think, Oh, eight seed, like this will be easy, but that's not the way it is in the West. And, and it's going to be an extremely tough matchup. And I'm wondering what you kind of at this point are thinking about what it could potentially look like for the Warriors in a, in a short playoff run. They would have to be the sixth seed for me to feel really comfortable, right? Like if you're in that play-in, it's just a crapshoot, man. I, I mean, obviously, if they're the seven or eight, I would feel confident that they're going to beat one of the nine or ten seeds once. Um, I, I think... I don't think they are done adjusting the roster. I do think there are moves, not big necessarily, but I do think they will make a, probably a couple moves near the deadline, especially if they continue to win over the next two to three weeks, right? Like they keep showing signs that this is a team that's improving. They just needed some time to gel together. It was a very new roster with a bunch of guys who have really never played basketball together with a shortened training camp and a shortened preseason. And they really just needed some time to figure things out. And they are showing signs I've ever seen. That was the worst offense and worst defense in the league through two weeks. And then suddenly became, you know, a middle of the pack uh, type of team. Like that's crazy to me. Correct. And, And they still, I mean, they still really struggle against good teams like really struggle They're They're like five and 11 against good teams and 10 and two against bad teams. Essentially the dividing marker being over 500 versus under 500. I think part right. of that, I, I, I saw that set the other day. I think part of that is they haven't closed games particularly well, which I think will sure. come in time. Cause Steph is a good closer in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a lot of things. I think it's also, they just, they get down big to good teams because 
they'll be kind of within striking distance and the bench comes in and then all of a sudden it's like a 15 point game yeah. that that happened with Brooklyn on uh, Saturday. Like it was maybe like a five, six point game at the end of the first quarter. By the time Steph got back in, it's like 15 or 12. And now Brooklyn makes a couple shots when he gets back in and the wheels come off. Right. Um, so I don't think they're done making moves. Um, I, I think they're going to try to improve this roster, especially because they have four fairly easy games over the next week, two weeks. They should be able to win at least three of those. They get four or five games above 500. It, you know, the front office gets more optimistic. They actually get healthy again. Um, and I just think Steph and Draymond in a playoff series against any of these like mediocre teams, I'm still picking them, especially if they can get like another shooter and maybe somebody to help the second unit a little bit because the defense has been really good. It's just that offense is so bad when Steph sits there. I want to say their offensive rating when he's on the floor, even it's like 115. And they started the season, it was like, you know, 103 overall because they were playing Oubre and Wiseman together a lot. And those guys just don't function well in like a very complex uh, reads heavy system. Um, but it's like 115 when he's on the floor. And when he's off the floor, I want to say their offensive rating is like 100.3. Like it would be by far the worst in the league. So they still do have a really good offense when he's on the floor, even though they're 18th or 19th in offensive rating. If they can do a couple of things on the margins, I really don't think they're that far from being, they're not in the top tier of the West, but they would scare any team outside of the LA teams. I still think that if they make a couple I moves, be, I would be but scared. a couple moves are necessary. Like a couple yeah. moves are necessary. They, if they just stand pat with the current roster, I'm basically out on this team. Cause there just isn't enough there. The bench is too bad. They have too many guys playing in the wrong role to actually mm-hmm. scare any good team. Interesting. Yeah. Like I, to be clear, I would be scared. I, I'm literally just saying like, you know, just under scrutiny. Like when I really look back at, you know, the comp, the comp would be 2018. Cause it's like, Similar it's roster, way different. It's I, I, it is in terms, different. Of the in terms of the competition. For sure, in terms of the competition. No, but that's what I'm saying. But if they get into the play, and that's the type of team they're going to be playing, and that's my point is like you would have thought going into that Pacer series, like, dude, there's no way LeBron and Kevin Love are losing this series, and especially with LeBron being at that version of himself, which was I, I, I like you know arguably the best version of himself. Now Draymond, I think, is better than Kevin Love, but the, the mm-hmm. but the, you get the point though. And, and yeah, going into well, that series, the, the teams, the teams in those play-ins: Sacramento, um, Memphis, uh, Dallas. Dallas, they manhandled once, and then the next night they, the next game, they didn't play as well because they only had eight guys on the roster, and they ended mm-hmm. up losing. They've kicked Sacramento's ass. Uh, they've beaten San Antonio like they they've beaten San Antonio twice badly, and they lost to him once. Like the teams in that kind of tier, right near five hundred or under five hundred. They're beating them soundly. Yeah. It's the teams that are like a couple, like the Phoenixes, the Brooklyns, the Phillies, the Lakers, the Jazz, the Clippers. Those are the teams that are beating the crap out of them. I really wouldn't worry about them against the play-in teams, honestly. That's, that's an interesting difference because the 2018 Cavs were very mediocre against bad teams because they had trouble getting up. Yeah. Uh, but then they had a bunch of really impressive wins. So yeah. so you're, you're, you might be onto something there. I just, yeah. well, I do, it, it'll be interesting to see. Th- the thing about Steph is, like, against the bad teams, they always end up losing him. And if you give him enough open looks, he's eventually going to break the game open. Yeah. That's just how he works, right? Like, with LeBron, it's different because he has to be locked and he has to have his energy because he, he's more of just a rim attacker. Like, that requires a certain amount of, like, mental energy and yeah. physical want to. With Steph, it's just, oh, he's, he has eight open threes tonight. 
six of those are going down. That's, that, that's why he's scoring 40 against the Magic. That's why you, like, that's why they're just crushing the bad oh, yeah. teams. Well, it's the Magic that kept losing him in transition. I couldn't believe it. Was it was ridiculous. Like, yeah. It's like, are you just going to keep giving him wide open threes? So they're going to continue to beat the crap out of the bad teams. It's more so, can they make enough improvements to where they just don't have these spells where they, they can't score for like six minutes in a row because their bench is so bad? The game was funny because I just I just watched the fourth quarter and like uh, I, I turned turned it on like ten minutes left in the fourth quarter and Sacramento had taken the lead back in the non-Steph minutes, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but Steph hadn't come back in yet. And over the course of the next few minutes, like now there, there there's a lot of talk about how Orlando is so destroyed by injuries that it's basically mm-hmm. Nikola Vucevic and four non-NBA players. But like mm-hmm. Ubre and Wiggins just put this relentless ball pressure on the ball handler coming up the court. They can do that. Yeah, and you could literally see you could literally see Orlando just completely get out of pace, completely get scared, start rushing to, and it was just like turnover, run out, dunk, turnover, run out, shot, turnover, run. And I was like, holy cow. Like and that's the interesting thing with that team is they're they're starting to make sense in the sense that it's like Ubre and Wiggins are just like these ridiculously athletic, like ball pressure wings. And then Steph is Steph and Draymond is Draymond. And that's why I, I agree with you. Like if they make a couple of moves, if they were willing to move Wiseman and that stupid pick from next year and just dive yeah. into this era and, and commit, um, man, like it could be scary. Because there's some stuff on that team that makes legitimate basketball sense as a yeah. team dangerous. Especially totally. with AD being out, potentially. Mm-hmm. That, that, and I've been trying to make that point to, word, to people who don't want to go all in for right now. That, there is no other choice in my mind. You have – one of the best three players in the league playing at his absolute peak, and he's also one of the 20, 15 greatest players of all time. Like, there is no other time. There might not be a player as good as this on the Warriors for the next 50 years. Like, betting that James Wiseman might be a really good player one day, which he might be, he very well might be, that's not the bet you want to make. You want to make the bet on the guy who's the best player that this franchise is ever going to see for probably either of our lifetimes. By the time somebody as good as Steph Curry plays on the Warriors again, it will probably be probably be the year 2090. Like, that's how good this dude is. You have to go all in right now. The there is no other choice. And the Minnesota pick combined being as good as Steph are like 1 in 50. Like it's, if it's, that. I, I agree. I mean, the, the, ask yourself, like, you know, given the, uh, uh, the fact that Houston almost beat Golden State in 2018 without Chris Paul, like – imagine I literally sit there sometimes and I'd be like, that's why you trade the Colin Sexton pick. Like you, you trade the Colin Sexton pick because now you have Colin Sexton, a guy who's a very middle of the pack guard in a league where that position is unbelievably stacked, or you could have traded him. And then a couple things break your way. And all of a sudden you're playing against a wounded Houston Rockets. Paul George, maybe could have Paul George. Maybe I could have a chance to win a title. That's what I'm saying is like you have, it's gambling, but it's like to me, it's a better gamble than kind of towing that line either way and never committing. You know, the, I mean? the Lakers did the LeBron experiment with experiment with the young guys. They tried it for like three months, and then they were all just like, "Screw this! Let's go get Anthony Davis." Yeah. And Anthony Davis, to be clear, isn't on the market right now. There isn't a level that level of guy out there for them to go get. But there are like really good players who are available: Bradley Beal, Zach Levine, like guys who would. I don't know what it would look like moving forward, right? The the fit gets a little bit clunky if Clay's still really good, and you have Levine and or Beal on that roster. It's three guards. It's not great defensively, but those guys still have value moving forward. Those guys are incredible scorers. Other teams would want to take those guys. You know, other teams with scoring deficiencies like 
let's say you get Beal and then you turn around, you want to trade him for like Miles Turner and a couple of Indiana's wings. I think Indiana would be into that, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with Levine. Like it, the Warriors have to be thinking not just the one move. It's like, what's the move and where can that get us in the future if Clay is still Clay, right? So I would, point Absolutely. being, Steph looks so good. He looks like, so looks good. Better than ever, which is something you and I talked about last week. If you give him Zach Levine or Bradley Beal and you don't absolutely have to gut the roster for it, like the guys who are currently helping, like if you only have to move Oubre um, and Wiseman and you bring in Beal and then you have Beal, Wiggins, Steph, Draymond, and then who's ever at the five, who's better than that team in the West besides a, a healthy Lakers team? I'm dead serious. Yeah, no, I'm yeah, like, yeah, so like I, I just – I think it's – it's foolish not to go all in with as good as Stefan is right now. No, I agree. It's just like you have the second best player in the world, in my opinion, playing at the very top of his game. And you've got two super young assets, one of which you literally don't know what it's going to be yet. And, and it has the highest value it will ever have right now. Cause it, exactly. they might not even get the pick this year. That's the kicker. It's top mm-hmm. three protected. And I know Steph's not washed yet, but like I wouldn't count on him being like a LeBron where he's super effective in his late 30s. I would plan on being like two, three years here where you have a real chance. That's the window. It's two to three years. Uh, But, dude, I've taken enough of your time. I know you've got plans tonight, so I'm going to let you get out of here, get the rest of your work done. Uh, Everybody who listened in, I really sincerely appreciate you guys as always. Um, I'm going to uh, release the podcast version probably here in about 20 minutes. But everybody enjoy the rest of your week and your weekend. And Tommy and I will see you probably next Tuesday or Wednesday. Thanks, everybody.